We are continuing a sermon series this morning through 1 Peter and 2 Peter as well. As Peter writes to believers who are living in a culture, a situation that was beginning to turn hostile towards Christ and his church. And certainly we relate somewhat to what he wrote. And what he does, of course, is he gives us hope. He writes to give us hope, a hope in the gospel, in Christ, a hope that we have a redemption that is already eternally secure, a hope that will be fulfilled. So we find ourselves now still in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, beginning in 1 Peter one twenty-two through chapter 2 and verse 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter writes, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We're thankful for its truth. We're thankful that you reveal to us the goodness of Christ, our Savior. And so we would ask now that your spirit would attend to the proclamation of it, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to learn, minds to grow and listen as you conform us more and more into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. Loneliness can be a very haunting thing. C.S. Lewis once said that we are born helpless, and as soon as we are fully conscious, we discover loneliness. We need others physically, emotionally, and intellectually. We need them if we are to know anything, even ourselves. And the fact is, we are not meant to be alone. We were not created for that. We were created for community. And this becomes especially evident and clear when we face times of suffering and trial and difficulty in our lives. And to face hardship and trials alone is a burden that is too heavy to bear. The weight of that loneliness adds to the circumstances of suffering, and it becomes crippling Love that is generated by the gospel is the great answer to that problem of loneliness, especially in times of suffering. Peter's first readers, no doubt, could use some gospel-grown love in their lives as they are trying to navigate the life of faith, a life following after Christ in faithfulness to Him in an increasingly hostile climate, they no doubt felt alone as spiritual exiles and sojourners. And it sounds like a very lonely calling. 
but it isn't. It isn't because God saves us by His grace, and that isn't a mere individual act of salvation at all. He saves us to be a part of His people. And so we are not alone. Last week we saw that Peter calls believers to be prepared to face the world that hates them for their faith. And they do that by hoping fully in the future grace that is promised to them in Christ, remembering the past and present grace that they already have in the gospel. And he also tells them to be prepared by being holy, to walk according to the calling of who they already are in Christ, living holy lives that reflect the grace of God already at work in them. And now he adds a third gospel imperative to that call to be prepared. So he says, First, you must hope fully in the grace that is yours, the grace that is coming. You must be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. And third, he says, you must love sincerely, a call to love. We read of it in verse 22. He says again, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And so he's turning our focus, our attention from the vertical, from looking to God, to hoping fully in His grace, and to living in a way uh, holy before Him to reflect His work in our lives, now to the horizontal dimension of that covenant relationship as we look towards others, particularly our brothers and sisters within that covenant community, within the church. He's beginning to explain how we are to live as these exiles in sojourners together in relationship with one another as citizens of the kingdom of God. Many Christians today take a solo approach to their faith. In fact, that is the pop Christian Western evangelical Protestant way of approaching faith. They, they view salvation and their relationship with Jesus on a personal and individual level, and it stops there. There's an emphasis on self-care and therapeutic spirituality. It's a have Jesus with your coffee in the morning kind of religion, and that's good enough. But that isn't what the gospel is about after all. It's a call to a community, a call to a covenant community of people who f- trust in the gospel of Christ together. There is a personal aspect of our faith that is true. There is an individual faith, but our covenant relationship with God was not meant to be merely individual. Salvation is very much on a communal, a collective level. We see that truth surface throughout the scriptures. And so here Peter calls us to love the members of God's covenant community to share life together as his people. And this is a very much a gospel cultivated love that overcomes the loneliness that suffering often brings. We need this because we will suffer in this life. Whether it is for our faith or for other reasons, we need this love. 
And we need it if we are to continue steadfast in our faith. You see, the church is to leave no one behind. So what kind of love is Peter talking about here, though? Because in our current culture, love is such a convoluted term. What's passed off as love is anything but love as God defines it for us in the Scriptures. And God reserves the right to define love and tell us what it is, what is true love, because love is very much part of His divine character. As He says in 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does uh, not love does not know God because God is love. So what is love? Well, people today treat it more of attraction or warm, fuzzy feelings. Love is what makes me feel good about myself and others. But that isn't love as God defines it at all. Peter here speaks of a love that is a pure love from a pure, love, a pure heart. A love that does not violate God's law or mock His holiness. Because if it does, it's not love. So how does one get a pure heart, though? Peter tells us, by obedience to the truth. That is simply faith in the gospel. Faith in Christ. The obedience of faith that the Scriptures speak of. It is a heart or soul that bows in submission to Christ as Lord and Savior, shepherd and king. Not only is this love a pure love from a pure heart that's been purified by the grace of God at work in a person who trusts in Christ, but Peter describes this love as being sincere, brotherly love. That is to say, it is authentic. It is without pretense. And brotherly love speaks of a familial connection, a community of a family. So by purifying your heart through the obedience of the gospel, you are placed into a true and authentic, a very real family. As Peter says... The purpose, the very goal of being purified by the grace of the gospel is that God's people love one another as a real family. In other words, you're not saved then to live a solo spiritual life. In fact, you won't be able to do that. But you are saved by God to be part of His community and to live your life in that community with genuine care for your brothers and sisters in the faith. See, redemption creates a community. And within that community, you find the care and the support and the help to navigate this exileship that we are all experiencing as sojourners in this world. Peter's call here to love is to love, as he says, earnestly. That is to say, actively, intentionally, with perseverance and dedication. It's not something we can just push aside and think about when we are suffering, but it's something to be continually before us. How do I love God's people through the gospel? And that means that I actually have to belong 
with God's people. I have to be part of the life of the church. Belonging to a local body of believers is vital. It is essential. I need it. It means that worshiping and fellowshipping with brothers and sisters in Christ is absolutely necessary for my faith to continue. It is so vital, in fact, that the Scriptures show us that salvation does not ordinarily happen outside of the church. And we say ordinarily because God does sometimes work in extraordinary circumstances. But when you look in the Scriptures, it is through the church, through God's people, that the means of salvation come into their lives. That is God's ordinary means of saving people. It is through His church. And that is why Cyprian, the church father, and later Augustine said, no one can have God for his father who does not have the church for his mother. That isn't Roman Catholic. That is simply biblical. Because God redeems his people collectively. He has always done that. Go back to the Old Testament where he calls forth Israel, the church of the Old Testament, his people under that old covenant banner, And he chooses them by his sovereign pleasure in a sheer act of his grace to be his people. And it wasn't just one person. It was a nation, a group of people that he called. And that calling broadens as we move through the covenant of grace. And now we live on the far side of the cross of Christ died, risen, and ascended. And now people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe are part of God's kingdom. And that kingdom manifests itself on earth in a very real way in the church of Christ our Lord. It is within the church that the very means of God's grace are realized and understood. And so it is within the church, our salvation then is very much realized and understood and made part of our lives. And so for that reason, we ought to love our family in Christ. We ought to demonstrate that authentic, genuine love for our family because the gospel, the gospel demands it of us. And that is to what Peter is calling us to this morning in this call to love. We ought to seek to join with God's people out of the love that God has planted in our hearts. In other words, the second thing we see in this text is that not only are we called to love, but it is as God's people, we are born into this love. You were born for this love. Peter writes, if you look at verse 23, He says, you are to love one another since, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And so again, he's bringing us back to that reality of the new birth. We've seen a lot of that here in first Peter one. Remember, being born again means you have a new life, a new citizenship, a new kingdom with new loyalties. 
You have a new community identity. And here, the, the focus is on the means that God has used to cause you to be born again. He speaks of an imperishable seed that is his word. And the idea behind seed is that of creation, of bringing to life. The imperishable word of God is the source of a believer's creation. If you are in Christ, you are not just created physically into this world, but you have been spiritually born again into God's kingdom. The very voice of God that spoke this universe into existence is what called you to himself. He who said, let there be light and there was light has said to you when you were dead in sins, let there be life and there was life. Again, we see the fact that being born again into this life with a new hope into a new family is very much contrasted with the temporary, the temporal life, temporal hope, and temporal family. Everyone born naturally into this world perishes. It doesn't last. Everything that exists is so temporary. But to be born of the imperishable seed of God's word means that there is something within us and about us that is everlasting. It is internal. And so the love we are commanded to show and to receive is an everlasting love. And to drive this home, drive home this truth, Peter cites from Isaiah. We read in verses 24 through 25, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is a citation from Isaiah 40, particularly uh, verses 6 and 8 of Isaiah 40. And when you look at the context of Isaiah's words, it helps us understand why Peter spoke this and wrote this and quoted this to those people who were his initial readers who were facing persecution. You see, Isaiah's prophecy is one that is designed to bring comfort to God's people as they faced exileship in Babylon. Isaiah 40 opens with familiar words, especially if you've Listen to Handel's Messiah. You've heard these before. Isaiah 41 says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned. That she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. God is rehearsing to his people throughout Isaiah 40 his promises to deliver them, to save them, to redeem them from all their trials, all their troubles, and all their sin. And Isaiah 40 is a message that is designed then to bring hope to a very discouraged people who have been scattered and abused and mistreated and mocked and slandered by those who hated them. And my Peter's original audience was very familiar with that situation. Just as God had worked in the past to restore his people in exile, 
he would work yet again to restore his people now living as spiritual exiles in the world. For many people, the call to faithfulness to the gospel is a call to suffer many things. Among those things can be the loss of a communal identity, and that can be hard to bear. As a first century Christian in the early church, one faced being cut off by their very own family for their faith in Christ. If you were a Roman citizen, society, after you became a Christian, now considered you to be an outcast. You had abandoned the Roman way of life that was very much integrated with uh, its pagan worship of the pantheon of gods and goddesses. And that influenced how people lived, how what they celebrated, what was important to them. But now you are on the outside. You are cut off. You have lost your communal identity. The same uh, was true for a Jewish believer. You were cut off from friends and neighbors and family for following the one that they considered to be the false Messiah, an imposter, the one the Pharisees had tried to do away with. You were considered a traitor of Israel. You were not welcome in the temple. You may have been kicked out of the synagogue in the places where you once felt at home. The things that gave you comfort and hope and a sense of identity in that community, a sense of shelter and joy and love, a sense of honor, all those things are now taken away from you because you have chosen to trust Christ. The very structures upon which you relied for getting through life were now taken away. You lost your communal identity. And that has been the situation for millions of God's people throughout the entire history of the church, even to this very day. And certainly as we feel Western society turn more and more belligerent towards those who profess to follow the truth of the gospel and uphold the inerrancy and integrity of his word, we no doubt feel the loss of social identity as well. We aren't the cool kids in town anymore. But Peter's here to remind us that if you are in Christ, you belong to a far better community. The covenant community of God's people does not fade like grass or hay or the flowers of the field. You look at the glory of all the earthly structures around us and the power that they seem to project, and yet they can crumble overnight. But the kingdom of God is eternal. It never changes because it is built on the never-changing word of God. And it is that word that was preached to you that brought the gospel into your life and you believed. You see, what this call to love one another as the people of God really is, is simply a call to keep believing the gospel. The temptation was for Peter's first audience and still is for us today to, to compromise our faith so that we still feel part 
of those community identities that we once held dear, to bow the knee to the popular drive of culture in order to fit in, to, to keep our status as members of society, our participants in all the institutions and structures that make us feel comfortable and safe in this life. But the call to love God's people is a call to leave that all behind if necessary so that we might remain true to Christ. And that is why we need to love one another. Because some of us will suffer for that. Some of us will suffer for our faith. We must bear each other's burdens. I mean, after all, all the things of this life will wither away. They will fall off the stem as flowers and hay. I don't mind buying flowers for my wife, but part of me does because when you pay all that money for flowers, they last for a few days and then they're dead. We do the same with Christmas trees, right? We buy Christmas trees, which are already dead, and we put them up for weeks, and then they drop needles on the ground. The things of this earth fail. They dry out. They fall so quickly. But the kingdom of God never fails. It doesn't fall. And so then we are called to love one another. That is Peter's call. And we need to heed it, especially in times of suffering, especially when we feel like the culture is starting to blow against us as it was for Peter's readers and as we are beginning to feel now. And the reason for that is, is that when we suffer and when we face trials and hardship, that suffering, those trials, they can divide us. In fact, you see that play out in people's lives so many times. Peter starts to unfold what the call to love our brothers and sisters of God's covenant community looks like as he begins chapter 2. He says, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. It is very interesting that when suffering comes into our lives, it does create or often creates interpersonal conflicts. Trauma and trials and pain will bring to the surface the worst of depraved human nature. And consider some of the things Peter talks about here. Malice. Malice is is hatred. It's, It's ill will towards others. When we suffer unjustly, especially, there is a great temptation to allow that hatred, to allow malice to spring up in our hearts towards others. Malice is a a mean spirit that that delights in the downfall of others. Deceit is what we think of when we think of lying. We see it as not telling the truth. But there's more to it than that. It's also hiding the truth, keeping things from others. It is bending and twisting or abusing the truth. In fact, if you go to the larger catechism, It details all that is forbidden by the ninth commandments in the Ten Commandments. And that commandment, of course, is to not bear false witness against your neighbor, to not live a life of deceit and to lie. It's quite a list. I won't read the whole thing, but I'll just read part of its answer. What is forbidden 
by the ninth commandment. The sins forbidden in the ninth commandment are all prejudicing of truth and the good name of our neighbors as well as our own, especially in public judicature, giving false evidence, suborning false witnesses, wittingly appearing and pleading for an evil cause, outfacing and overbearing the truth, passing unjust sentence, calling evil good and good evil, rewarding the wicked according to the work of the righteous and the righteous according to the work of the wicked, forgery, concealing the truth, undue silence in a just cause, and holding our peace when iniquity calls for either a reproof from ourselves or complaint to others, speaking the truth, unseasonably or maliciously or to a wrong end or perverting it to a wrong meeting. And it goes on and on and on. And all of that is proof from scripture. All of it is sin. All of it flows from a heart of deceit. Peter also says, put away all hypocrisy, which is, of course, is related to deceit. It's full of pretense and selfishness. It does not seek the good of others, but one's own good. It pretends to care for others, but inwardly despises them. Envy. Envy wants the blessings and joys that others have experienced for myself in a sinful way. Envy tells you that you deserve better, that you deserve more, that there is somehow an injustice that has befallen you because you don't have everything that your neighbor has. Envy consumes a person so that they cannot rejoice with those who rejoice or weep with those who weep. It finds no love for others. And slander, of course, is the way we speak of others. It says things that are either untrue or perhaps were true, but uses them in a way to injure and to harm. And all of these sinful attitudes and actions have one thing in common. They all choke out love for others. They all flow from a human heart that is sinful by nature, born of the perishable seed, the passions of former ignorance that we considered last week, the the, the futile ways that are passed down from generation to generation from Adam, our forefather. These are community killers and relationship destroyers. And so Peter says, put them away, literally take them off like a coat and lay them aside. So we say, well, Peter, how do we do that? Because if our hearts by nature are naturally inclined to do these things, because our hearts, we know, are corrupt by nature, they're bent away from God and bent upon ourselves. So how then do we lay these things aside? Aren't they part of who we are? Aren't they part of our identity? No, they are not if you are in Christ. It doesn't mean that we don't sin in these ways and struggle with these things, but they are not who you are. Peter wants us to not think about these sins as who we are, but rather of who we were. That's who you were before you became a sojourner, an exile. We don't have to treat others with malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander because we have been born 
to a new, a living hope. We are born into a new and better community. And the source of that new birth is the unchanging word of God. In other words, he has caused us then to be something different. He has given us a new heart. And it is from that new heart that this true, perfect, purified love flows. And so how then do you put off all that chokes out brotherly love and destroys true community? What do you do? Well, Peter tells us. In fact, when he starts chapter 2 here, he says to put off malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. That's not actually an imperative that he's given, an imperative word. It is an imperative, but it's not in the imperative tense. It's, it's, it's a participle. Another way to translate it would be to say, putting away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, long for spiritual milk. That's the imperative. To long for, to desire, to crave, to yearn for this spiritual milk. And when we do that, we will put aside those things because the grace of God is at work in our hearts. We need to ask the question then, if we are to be longing for this spiritual milk, that what is the spiritual milk that Peter is talking about? I mean, we, we get the metaphor. Infants need milk to live. It sustains them. It nourishes them. It, it protects them. It gives them life. Without nutrients, they would fade away. They would grow weak and eventually die. But what is the milk that Peter is talking about? What is this thing that keeps us alive and sustains and nourishes our souls? Well, many interpreters believe this to be the Word of God, specifically the Gospel. And that seems reasonable. After all, Peter has just told us that we are born again of the imperishable seed of the Word of God. But Peter doesn't say The spiritual milk here is the Word of God. It includes it, but it's not simply the Scriptures. This isn't a command to read your Bible more or listen to more preaching, though that is certainly a good practice of our religion that will strengthen your faith. But the word translated spiritual here is very interesting. It's actually logikos. It's the Greek word from which we get logic or logical It speaks of something that is genuine, something that is real and true as an essential part of its being, of its nature. And verse 3 gives us a key to understand what he is talking about here. What is that one thing that is real and true and essential always? It is the goodness of God. Milk here in 1 Peter 2 is the goodness of God. And of course, it includes His Word, but it is more than His Word. Because we are to desire then more of God, to desire more of His goodness. It includes Him as a person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is to desire the all of His being, all that He is, His grace, His mercy, His love, His patience, His peace, His holiness, His justice, His wrath, His power, And his might. You see, if we are to love one another with genuine brotherly love, we must first love the Lord our God. We must crave, desire all that he is. 
like a baby desires milk. We must want to know more of Him, to be close to Him, to experience all that He is. To long for spiritual milk of God's goodness is to desire the life of faith into which He has caused us to be born again. This is a command to desire that thing that made you who you are, the goodness of God. And where do we express that life of faith? Where do we taste of the goodness of God? It isn't simply in the quiet, individual corners of our heart, though part of it is that, but it is far more. It is within the covenant family that He has placed you to what He has called you, His people his church. And that's why he calls us to love one another from a pure heart with purified love. We love one another. We long to be together because we long together for the goodness of God in all of our lives through our worship and through our fellowship, through the life of faith that we live in this world. And so no, you don't suffer alone. You are not alone in this life. If you have tasted the grace of the gospel, if you are united to Christ in faith, your identity is far bigger than just who you think you are or feel yourself to be. Your identity is tied to this covenant, to community to which God has birthed you into by His imperishable Word. And so as the world closes in around the church and we feel its hot anger, we hear its vengeful words of raging against all that is true and righteous and right, all that pertains to God. Remember, you are not alone. And remember, you are not alone by loving that community that God has called you to. A kingdom that will never fade. And so love, as Peter says, love one another earnestly. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel that has saved us, not simply for ourselves, but to be part of something bigger than who we are, to be part of your covenant people. Father, I pray that you would help us to remember these truths as we gather week in and week out as your people to worship you, but not just in those moments of worship, but throughout the week that you would bring to remembrance the fact that we belong to your kingdom. And we have people that we know personally who are our brothers and sisters, fellow citizens of that kingdom, that we are walking, sojourning hand in hand together through the exile ship of this world towards that great day when you will bring all your promises to completion at the appearing of Christ our King. And so help us, Father, for the grace of your gospel to love one another. Forgive us when we fail. Forgive us when we turn to those moments of malice and hatred and anger and slander. Help us to lay those things aside, for we are so inclined to them. But Father, by your grace, let us walk in the love that you have placed in our hearts. By your unchanging word, we pray this in Christ's name.
Amen.